Welcome to Artificial Avenues with your favorite tour guide, Julie Labley. Buckle up and prepare for the start of this new episode. Artificial intelligence has spread all over the world and has evolved to be a part of many things in our daily lives. But to what extent has artificial intelligence played a role in how things work today and how will it continue to grow and evolve? Welcome back to yet another episode of Artificial Avenues, where we'll take a new trip in the world of artificial intelligence. Today's trip is filled with information from specialists in different fields, as well as some additional information from your favorite tour guide, me. In this journey, we'll discover how artificial intelligence is being used in education, healthcare, business, art, and cooking. And we'll end this journey with a story on how artificial intelligence saved a person's life. So make sure to keep in tune to listen to that story and all the beneficial information. Starting off strong, let me introduce you to Dr. Alariz Zahabi, who has dedicated her time to innovating the medical field with artificial intelligence. Welcome, Dr. Adari. Thank you so much for being here today. Looking into the healthcare system, can you say that people who are working in this field are open to innovating the way medical care is provided with the use of artificial intelligence? Absolutely. Imagine a world where doctors have super smart AI assistants helping them out. Just like how we use smartphones to make our lives easier, doctors are excited about using AI to make healthcare better. For example, AI can look at thousands of medical records in seconds to find patterns and suggest treatment faster than ever before. Considering the immense pressure on healthcare systems due to the rise in lifestyle-related diseases such as hypertension, diabetes, obesity, cancer, and heart diseases, as well as infectious disease as we saw during COVID, along with what is noticed globally, the shortage of physicians and the increasing cost of healthcare, um, stakeholders and healthcare professionals themselves are incredibly very receptive to creative and technological solutions that can for sure enhance the quality of care provided and improve the overall patient's experience. How can artificial intelligence make physicians' lives easier? Well, that is the $1 million question. Everyone in healthcare is trying to find out how AI can make physicians' life easier. So think, let's think about it this way. So if we think that AI can be a sidekick for doctors, so it can help by analyzing huge amounts of data really fast. So uh, if we imagine a doctor who's trying to read thousands of x-rays in a minute, that where actually AI shines. It can spot problems in those x-rays that might be hard for the human eye to catch, and it can do it even faster. So let's consider an example where a pathologist is examining tissue samples for about 100 patients every day using his microscope to identify abnormalities in cells and tissues. And if we know that out of these 100 patients, 80 of them will have normal findings and only 20 patients will have abnormalities that require further investigation and staining. We all know that machine learning and deep learning, they really excel in image analysis, and pathology is all about images. Therefore, imagine if we have an AI tool that can accurately filter those 100 slides and label the normal slides that will allow the pathologist to focus mainly on the abnormal cases only, which are the 20 remaining cases. This for sure will not only save time, but also accelerates the reporting process significantly. So now if it takes 10 to 14 days to report a pathological finding, with these tools, it might be reduced to up to two days or three days, which will improve the quality of care and the standard of care. 
Furthermore, we know AI assistant triaging tools or what is it what they are called virtual medical assistants. They have been remarkably successful in Western countries and China. Uh, basically, these tools collect medical history and offers advice to the users on whether to visit the emergency room, consult with a family doctor, or simply take over-the-counter medication. So far, this approach has been proven to highly be beneficial by reducing the burden on healthcare system, saving patients commuting time, minimizing work absence, and allowing doctors to have more time for meaningful interaction with patients, where only patients who need such services can visit the hospital and people who are fine and they don't have serious diseases can be managed through that virtual assistant. Do you think that artificial intelligence will replace physicians? In my opinion, AI will not be able to replace doctors in the foreseeable future. In fact, uh, let's say this way, where this idea is what causes many doctors to be hesitant about using AI in their field or even realizing its advantages because they are fearing it replacing them. Uh, actually, I remember attending a talk at an AI in healthcare conference that was a few months ago. Uh, and uh, during one of the discussions, there was a professor who made a remarkable statement about the future uh, when he suggested that there might come a time when traditional medical school will be no, no longer exist. Instead, he mentioned the ongoing trials of Neuralink chips that is, is under development by Elon Musk's company, uh, which could potentially be used to directly implant a chip that has a vast amount of medical knowledge covering anatomy, physiology, biochemistry, medicine, and surgery, and all other medical knowledge into a person's brain. So instead of going through 7 to 13 years of medical education to gain that knowledge, so this knowledge basically can be uh, uploaded into a chip, and that chip can be implanted in his brain in one sitting during a surgery, and immediately after the surgery, he has all this information in his brain. And actually, that sounded like both uh, amusing and scary at the same time. Uh, but let's, let's look at that way where medicine actually is not science. Medicine is an art and science. So we know AI can handle science very well. But till now, till, till, till today, the capabilities of AI in the art of medicine is very scarce and it is not very well developed. It cannot handle human feelings, empathy, and understanding. And we know doctors go beyond more mere physical healing. They strive to comprehend our concerns, anxieties, and aspirations. Therefore, AI will not replace physicians in the near future, but it can replace physicians who do not embrace its advantages. What's your opinion on the use of AI as virtual medical assistants that many people are using today instead of going to a physician in real life? Actually, I use them personally and I encourage my kids and my family members to use them and to play with them frequently. So um, if we think about it in a way where you wake up, for example, one morning with a sore throat, cough and mild fever, you are not sure if it is something serious or it is a simple common cold. So um, instead of you rush to the doctor's office, skipping school or skipping um, uh, working day, 
you decide to use this virtual medical assistant in your smartphone. So you pick the app, you describe your symptoms, uh, you answer a few questions that the app asked you, then the virtual assistant uses artificial intelligence to analyze your input. And then after a brief conversation, it can suggest that your symptoms are consistent with such and such, which is very mild. And then it can even provide you some home remedies, advise you to rest, for example, to stay hydrated and to take whatever over-the-counter called medication, if needed, for sure. It might also give you some, like a list of some warning symptoms. If you develop A and B, then you need to go to hospital. And then even it can decide if you go to emergency department or if you can go to your family medicine. So... Then you follow the virtual assistant advice and within a few days you are fine, your symptoms improved as expected. So we should thank virtual medical assistant for providing such instant service and accurate service and saving you a commute, saving you money, saving you from skipping school for the visit and to take the medication or whatever advice needed. Another helpful way of using it, actually, if you are traveling to a country that people don't speak your language and you get sick, for example, you develop diarrhea or allergy or whatever, and you don't have health insurance in that country, so simply you can pick your app, you ask it a few questions through simple conversation, it can give you some advice. And if, you, if, if your case is serious, it can direct you to um, an emergency department. Um, but here, actually, it is very helpful, and people are using it very, very uh, commonly in Western countries. In fact, people are teasing themselves, I'm using this app. Go, no, 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 I'm don't using this, that app because I don't like it, so I'm using another app. So they are teasing each other about the superiority of the apps they are using. But there is a twist here, actually. If, if there are lots of ethical and legal issues related to this, uh, for example, if the virtual assistant made a mistake and told you, for example, take a medicine and you are allergic to that medicine and there was something happened to you, like allergic reaction, or if it, if it diagnosed your illness wrongly and it, that makes things worse. For example, it tells you that the disease is mild and it turned out to be a serious condition lead to a serious complication. As, in that scenario, who would be responsible for that mistake? Would it be you, the user? Would it be the company who made the app or is it the doctor who advised you or recommended the app for you? So there are lots of question marks in the situation. Um, also, your information that you feed into the software or the app. What about the privacy of this health information? What if these were breached and your information has been um, breached and by, by people and they use it for purposes that legal? So there is a big privacy concern in these apps. So uh, till now, we don't have ethical framework to control this, but we need a strong rule and strong guidelines to make sure using these virtual helpers is safe for patients and does not mess up with our, with our healthcare system. I would like to give a big thanks to Dr. Adari Zahabi, who provided us with lots of useful information that is worth listening to. Moving forward, let's see how the educational field a field that a lot of us are familiar with is being innovated with AI. We are honored to have Mr. Ibrahim to discuss this with us. Hi, Mr. Ibrahim. How are you doing? I'm well. Alhamdulillah. Thank you. 
Okay. Good to be here. Would you like to introduce yourself to the audience, please? Yeah, sure. Um, my name is Mr. Rahim. I've been a teacher at the school formerly known as Ottawa International School, now known as Ellesmere Muscat. And uh, I've been here, this is my eighth year, or seventh year, rather, uh, teaching. I've, I've been in and out of Vermont for the past eight years. Though. Okay. So starting off strong, how is AI being used in education? I think that's a question of the user and the various um, ways that that use could play out. But I think it starts with the user, right? So I think if we start with students, um, AI is increasingly being used, much in the way that Google and other search engines were used when they were first introduced. And they, they became very revolutionary tools in the hands of those who no longer wanted to access books, let's say, or information by, by virtue of going through you know, the library catalogs and whatnot. Um, I think if you ask me, these are the conversations I have with people, I think AI is, is, is acting much in that way um, within the current context. Students are accessing information. That's one thing. But students are also producing information. And I think that's a stark difference between what we saw when the Google revolution came about. Um, imagine being able to have a tool that helps you to research, but then to actually put the essay together for you mm -hmm. in a matter of minutes. Uh, I think that's changed everything. And anyone who can say that that's not tempting isn't being honest. Now, in terms of users, um, we can also look at, at adults. Um, adults increasingly are using AI to develop things that they used to do manually. Um, everything from lesson planning to writing of speeches for certain uh, occasions, graduation speeches, for example, um, and you name it. I mean, how many applications are there really? And they're only growing as time goes on. So I think if we're being honest, there are many uh, categories of potential users who are, who are doing the using, so to speak, and they're using them for a variety of things. Now, the question, and I'm sure we'll get to this around, you know, the ethics of that and what is and isn't uh, good use or upright or proper use is another yeah. set of conversations that we can perhaps have. But I would say there are such, there is such a multiplicity of, of potential uses for AI in every realm of education, from planning to execution of, of particular plans to the writing of documents. Obviously, the biggest one that we often think about is long-form writing, i.e. essays, and what that means for education. But the first point of, of order is that it should be known that virtually everyone in the building is using AI on some level. Mm -hmm. And it's only continuing to grow. So yeah. in the next few years, we'll see even more of it. Yeah, definitely. Uh, so how have AI tools made education more accommodating for students? Yeah, I think, I think that's a great question. Um, I think about accommodation all the time because one of the, the key concerns I have, I'll give you a, a simple example. Um, so there are students in a, in a school building who may not have necessarily been in an English school in the past. They've been in private schools or they've been in uh, government schools, quote unquote, um, in which perhaps the English program wasn't particularly strong. And so these children now are in a mathematics class, some of them for the first time, or at least for one of the first times in their lives, um, in which mathematics is being taught in English and the assumption of the teachers that that child is at the level of everyone else, right? Um, there are many tools that are AI focused that allow children such as those to access the language on a word problem more quickly than if they were to go through and just kind of Google all the definitions as an example. So that's one basic application to kind of bridging the gap where language is concerned. There are other concerns too around, for example, 
uh, working on a project. There are some kids, such as yourself, some students who are well-versed in technology, such as the one that you're employing to make this. There are some who have no idea, never done a podcast, who've never done a video. And these AI technologies are allowing kids who to basically uh, bridge the gap, so to speak. Um, those children might have really good ideas, but they just don't have the experience, the technical know-how. These tools allow them to have access. So those are two quick examples, um, but there certainly are so many good things um, that could be accessed by, the, or good applications rather, uh, that could be accessed by these, these children. So compared to 10 or 20 years ago, how has artificial intelligence made education better and more open? I think it's important to note that, yeah, fine, we have this chat GPT revolution mm -hmm. as the thing that people will point to perhaps 20 years from now, um, or perhaps even now, and people have, I would say, a very um, erroneous assumption that that's where it started, chat GPT. Mm. What do you think spell correct is, <laughs> right? Um, that's AI, you know? Um, it's a lesser form of AI, but it's AI nonetheless. I think we've been dependent upon AI for all of my adult life, for sure. Um, just varying degrees of it based on your access, based on the kind of programs you're, you're using, the kinds of applications you're using, and the extent to which you're exposed to these things, I would say, um, would predict the level of access one would have. That all being said, there's no mistaking that we are at a pinnacle point in terms of, or a critical point rather, in terms of our usage and dependency upon AI and certainly our access to AI. I think the average person 10, 20 years ago simply didn't have this powerful, uh, uh, I, I would say, tool or, or access to such a power tool, powerful tool as we do now. And I think what's happening is increasingly we can see that the floodgates are being opened to that kind of cheap, uh, readily available access to very strong and, and, and uh, powerful tools of, of AI. And so really I would say we're, we're a mile away from, miles and miles away from where we were even five years ago in such a short time, but that's how technology tends to be. Mm -hmm. I mean, I was talking to someone about YouTube earlier and I was saying, I was telling them how YouTube started, you know, um, the kinds of videos that we saw. And one of the earlier videos was like a cat video, just like, yeah. <laughs> you know, like these various kind of like emblematic beginning points of, of YouTube. We're, I think we're, when you think of where YouTube has gone and the various sort of offshoots that, that YouTube has uh, led to even outside of YouTube itself, I mean, you can only imagine where we're going to be going from here in terms of AI. We're probably mm -hmm. going to see a similar trajectory, um, but yeah. Do you think that people who work in the educational field are open to the innovation of AI in education? I think this is an important question. I, I would say, I hate to say yes and no, but you're not going to find like a monolithic yes down the line for everybody because change is something that people are challenged by and oftentimes people don't like change. Um, there are so many ethical issues when it comes to this, this matter of AI that people haven't quite worked around. Um, there are articles that were released earlier in the school year uh, coming by way of IB, and when you look at the documentation, you quickly realize that they've embraced it. You know, within IB, there's this idea. People, I remember th thinking to myself, what are they going to say about AI? What is the yeah. ruling you're going to come to? And obviously, they probably learned from their predecessors because, once again, I'm sure when it came down to something like, I mentioned uh, YouTube, but the parent company, Google, um, when you look at something like Google, like, there was a world before Google. I know it's hard for 
people your age in general to assume or to believe. But there was a world where you didn't have a search engine that could do what Google did. Yeah. You had things like Netscape Navigator, but they were very limited. The internet felt a lot smaller, I'll say it like that. And so what I'm saying is at that point in time, we were having similar conversations. I'm saying we, I was a student. I, I, I wasn't having the conversation, but I'm sure educators were having similar conversations. You know, like, what are we going to do with this? How can we control this? And it tends to come down to that. How, to what degree can we control it? Um, and if we can't control it, then we can't allow it. And that's what many teachers will say. Mm-hmm. Say, oh, keep it over there then. Or do it, but don't let me see that you've done it kind of thing. Because it's like, I don't know what to do with, it, with this. I don't know what to make of it. And I think because of that, there are many people who are against it. But as I said, we as a community, you know, as a whole, are using these things. Teachers are using these things to help create for their classes as well, for the benefit of students. So I think, I think the average teacher who's coming in now obviously will be way more adept. But I feel for teachers who have been here for 20, 30 years, I think it, on, in general, it's probably going to be a little bit difficult. Um, a little bit more difficult for them to necessarily embrace, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, I know it's not quite, it's one of those 50-50 answers, but I think you're really looking at it kind of like depending on where they're coming from, what their philosophy is, what their teaching philosophy is, how they were educated, what country they were educated in. These are the kinds of things that determine responses to these kinds of questions, unfortunately. So it's a mixed bag, I'm sure. Mm-hmm. Do you think that AI can later replace teachers? It depends on what kind of teacher you are. Mm-hmm. I'm going to say yes, because if you're a teacher, ironically, if you're a teacher who, whose whole um, you know, career has been spent setting kids up to memorize things, for example, then yeah, you've already been replaced. <laughs> you're already, you've already made yourself irrelevant. Um, however, the human touch is, is uh, 100 and 0. You know? There's, there, in other words, it wins every time. You're, no matter what you're able to learn on your own, and I've learned a lot of things, I'm engaged in a lot of self-study, I've taken courses that are sort of self-study based, I always say if only I had a couple of other people to bounce this off of. Or somebody who, you know, in some cases, not all cases, but in some, in, in some cases, somebody who could sort of guide the process. And I think there's something about that. And it's as ancient as time itself. It's not teaching the idea that the advent of teaching didn't start when someone said, hey, we need to take kids off of the farm and put them into classrooms. Teaching is something that's always happened for all time. Mm-hmm. So, and and con- it starts with the relationship with, yeah. with the mother and the, and the child, you know? Contrary to that question, do mm-hmm. you think that students will continue to navigate to teachers or just like uh, find the easy way out with AI? Yeah, yeah, I hear you. That's a good question. <laughs> the ones who, have, who are honest will use AI Everyone will. I, that's my prediction. Everyone is already, and everyone mm-hmm. will continue to. Um, but I think they'll double back to in the same way I did. Because what I did, the online courses I've done in my life, I have always tried to do it as a way to just cut to the chase. Like, I don't want to hear your lectures. Let me just get mm-hmm. the information, right? And by the end, I'm always like, oh, there's a tinge of regret. Like, I yeah. feel like I, I cheated myself. And I think that's the case here. I think the teacher, or the students, rather, who who are really curious will always want to have somebody else to bounce that information off of and not necessarily to correct them, but to kind of guide them and to have that conversation with anything else. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Thank you so much for your You're time and your welcome. questions. You're welcome. Thank you for the great questions. Thank you. Yeah. That was an interesting insight from Mr. Ibrahim, and I thank him for this contribution. In this episode, we looked into the use of AI in two fields, healthcare and education. Unfortunately, we'll have to leave it at that and continue our trip tomorrow. 
next episode, we will continue our trip exploring different fields where AI is being used, seeing if it's good or evil, and we'll end with a story. See you in the continuation of the episode. This is Artificial Avenues. Thank you for listening to this episode of Artificial Avenues. This was your host, Julia Labri. If you would like to send a review or contact me, my email is julialabri23 at gmail.com. See you in our next episode.